Hello, everybody. Today is September 26, 2023, and I'm honored to have with me one of my former students, Thomas Khalil, who is the founder and I guess chief executive of Global Education Opportunities. But a little bit of background about Tom. Before it, all this happened, he went to Penn as an undergraduate. And then after he graduated, he worked in Russia after the wall fell. And then he, then he went to Denver, where he co-founded some businesses. Then he went back to Wharton, where he got his MBA in 2003. And then he did some venture capital work. And then after that, he was the Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Wharton from 2005 to 2008. And then he in 2008, he began Global Education Opportunities. So welcome, Tom. Thank you, uh, Professor Chalfin. <laughs> always, uh, always a professor. One of my, by far, one of my favorite classes. And, I, and I'm not just saying that. I really appreciate the opportunity to come back and speak with you. Well, thank you. With the understanding that this is not a paid commercial uh, <laughs> announcement, I just want to ask you something. It seems sure. like you, it must have been a really unique opportunity to work as Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Warden. Can you just tell us for a minute or two? Any of your impressions of what happened there and how you enjoyed it? It was, you know what? It was completely unexpected. I was uh, sitting in my office in Cupertino and I got a call from uh, my very good friend and the then dean of the MBA program, Anjani Jain, who you remember. Right. And, uh, who's you know, now at Yale. He was now at Yale. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's a guilty conscience or what, but I'm thinking, okay, why is the vice dean calling me? Uh, on a Tuesday, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think I did anything wrong. And, uh, you know, he said, listen, we've been talking about it and um, we need a new uh, director of MBA admissions, financial aid, and your name keeps coming up at the top of everybody's list. And we really like to talk to you about it. And so that started a, a process of interviewing and kind of soul searching and, and looking inward and realize that admissions is something I've I've always loved to do. I've been involved in admissions with my prep school, with Penn, with Wharton. And uh, I said, you know what? This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is my chance to really do something meaningful. Um, and so I, I was fortunate to receive an offer and accepted it. And it just really turned out to be three extraordinary years. And so I guess you were trotting the globe and meeting with some really exceptional people and Absolutely. You know, it was, it was wonderful. So as an alumnus, it was great to go out and meet fellow alumni around the world. And I logged ridiculous amounts of travel, uh, trotting. I wish I was trotting. I was at a full sprint uh, nonstop because it also coincided with uh, Dean Harker's departure. So there was a, a gap there for a while where I was getting calls saying, hey, can you go to this alumni dinner in Tokyo or this alumni function in, you know, in um, Johannesburg. And so I ended up doing a lot of traveling, meeting a lot of alumni, and yes, meeting some really extraordinary uh, people, um, applicants from around the world. So you really were the Rhodes Scholar, R-O-A-D Scholar for a period. Absolutely. So so you, you're, at, you're the Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Wharton for three years. And then in 2008, yes. you started Global Education Opportunities. Can you tell us a little bit about what your business does? Absolutely. So we we have three main lines of business. The first, I would say, and most important, 
is that we do admissions advising. Uh, we work with families on you know selective admissions to anywhere really from preschool to graduate school. I also advise uh, governments, large corporations, and foundations on admissions and education-related uh, projects and 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 matters. And then I do invest in uh, education-related startups as well. What people are always interested about is how do you prepare for the admission process, whether it be to college or graduate school, such as MBA or law school or medical school? Mm -hmm. No, you know, absolutely. And and it's it's something that uh, my wife gets very tired of taking me to parties and having having people corner me and and ask me all the questions. Um, you know, I think it, it at at each stage, right, for a competitive high school undergraduate program or graduate program, really, you know, you need to be evidencing intellectual curiosity. You need to be demonstrating interest in specific things, right? So what's changed a lot from when, you know, I applied to, to school, when you applied to school is that it used to be that they were looking for what was called an all uh, well-rounded student, right? So you needed to do well in academics. You needed to have some extracurricular activities, do some community service, and ideally do some sports, right? But what the schools found is that that was building classes in kind of these horizontal layers, right? And there was a, a level of um, homogeneity in there that was not conducive to building all kinds of diversity within the class. And what the schools have shifted to now, and in undergrad in particular, they have some of these schools will have 50, 60, 80,000 applicants, right, for maybe 1,500 spots. So what they're able to do is, is instead of build a class, they're able to curate a class. And what they're looking for are individuals who are exceptionally good at maybe one or two things. So the theory now is, and for the your, the consultants in your audience, you know, they're looking for a spike. So they're looking for somebody that says, "I am a really good musician, or artist, or scientist, or math person." Right? And the idea is, when you take these people that are truly exceptional at what they do, and you put them together in a class, there's a lot that happens between them that creates something that is greater than some of its parts. And so what I tell people is. It's really not important what you are doing. It's important that you are doing, that you're approaching the school and saying, I am a intellectually curious. So I've challenged myself academically at every step of my life, but I'm also curious about things around me. I am passionate about whatever it is, and this is how I've evidenced it, right? Not in the way that everybody thinks I should by going to a summer program and then doing some kind of like fluffy fake research with a paid firm, but really kind of digging in and finding those opportunities, being, for lack of a better word, entrepreneurial about creating interesting ways to pursue something it is that you really love, and then being able to evidence that in the admissions process. Now, in a typical college application, we were talking beforehand, you said that how much time does the reviewer spend reviewing the student's application? Uh, on average, it's about four and a half to five minutes, right? And so what does a student do to stand out during that four and a half to five minute uh, test? Well, you know, so it's, so it's both um, astoundingly simple and incredibly difficult. 
right? So, you know, when you, when you look at, when you look at an application, it's very clear. So a lot of students think I can bluff my way through this, right? And, um, you know, if you think about like the 10,000 hour rule, admissions professionals are professionals. I had associate directors in my office at Wharton that had been doing this for 20, 25 years. And so they have very strong intuition and experience on these things. And so when you open an application, you see very quickly where the holes are, where things don't add up. The other thing is authenticity of voice. So when you are reading essay after essay after essay, right? Most people have a very limited data set. Their N might be five, 10, if they're lucky, maybe 25 people, right? That they can kind of reference their essays to. And so they'll write an essay and they'll think, Ooh, this is really original. And then they get very upset when I tell them, yeah, you know what? I've seen at least a hundred instances of that already this year. And people who send me essays or ask me questions, right? That's not an original approach. And generally, not much is an original approach. So the way that you stand out is by having, um, by being self-aware and being honest, right? So when you read, you're a very experienced professor. When you read a paper, when you read something somebody's turned in, you know very quickly if they're bluffing you or if they actually know what they're talking about, right? And so there's a clarity there. It's not about fancy words. It's not about building these really complex structures. It's about the self-awareness to say, look, this is who I am. This is what matters to me. This is what I'm trying to do. And the same is true for undergraduate and for graduate admissions, right? There's a sense of clarity that comes through these applications that jumps out at you. Now, some of the top schools now are accepting one out of 20 applications, sometimes even less, one out of 30. Yes. So they get lots and lots of applications. Is there anything else they should be doing to stand out? Well, what the applicants, they want to see, that is, of course, what they want to see is that for, so for undergraduate, what you really want to see is how are you pursuing what it is that you love, right? And, and do all of these parts add up? So you say that you want to be a journalist. Okay, great. So what have you done to evidence that? I'll give you an example. I have a student um, that I'm helping with right now, one of my pro bono cases, who wants to be an architect, all right? And so what did he do? He started by, he has a part-time job, had a part-time job in high school, bought himself drafting pencils, uh, paper, started taking YouTube courses on architecture, maxed out on those, tried to take courses at his local community college, wasn't old enough. So he talked one of his advisors at his high school into registering for the course, took it via Zoom with his camera off, got an A in the course for architecture, went to the head of the department, showed him all his work and said, can I please enroll? Can you waive the age requirement so I can take these other classes? The head of the department laughed and said, sure. So he took five courses at this college, got A's and everything, applied to and got a scholarship to go to Deerfield, which is a prep school that has an architecture studio embedded in it. Leverage that into a paid summer internship at a local architecture firm, right? And now he's applying to college. And before people say, oh, that sounds like somebody who's, you know, pulling strings, who had parents, everything else, he is a ultra low income first generation student. Well, right? at the very least, I'd give that person an A in determination, initiative, it, and creativity and drive. Exactly. 
So when you read that, that jumps out from the students who just kind of take a summer program in architecture at Cornell, who, you know, kind of go this standard route. They join, they start an architecture club that has maybe five members, right? Because you see that over and over and over again. So when you look at that student's kind of drive and path, you're like, wow, this is somebody who's really, really interesting, right? And, and so it's, and and also we need to be aware of the fact that it depends on where you're coming from, right? So it's just as compelling if you say, listen, you know, I need to actually work and earn money to sell, help support the family. So I got a job at McDonald's. And you know what I learned? I learned how to, you know, I learned how to be on time. I learned how to do cash management. I learned how to do customer service, right? So there's a lot that goes into that. There are all different paths to these, some of which are very fancy research opportunities and summer programs. Some of it is just rolling up your sleeves and getting things done. Now, how do you differentiate or how do you try to determine if the essay was written by the student or some mm-hmm. advisor? Well, so there's or a AI. Or AI, yes, of course. So, so AI, the 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 big uh, the big elephant in the room currently. So, first of all, I strongly advocate that students do not use AI. I think it's okay. Personally, I don't like it, but I understand if students want to use ChatGPT to generate uh, ideas for an essay. But the problem is that again, it goes back to your reference set, right? So most. Most students, most undergraduate students will show their essays to their parents and their English teacher, right? Or maybe a consultant. And their their awareness, their data set is very, their, you know, N is very small. And so what looks good, what looks slick, what looks well put together as an essay to an admissions officer who's very experienced, who's reading thousands of these every cycle, it immediately does not resonate. Right. It's too slick. You don't get a sense of the person. You don't get a sense of the person behind the story. You see similarity in phrasing between, you know, when you you can tell, I can read an essay and tell you which parts were done by person A and which parts were done by persons B, C, and D. There are subtle changes in tone that you just can't, you can't fake. And to an untrained eye, it looks good. But to a trained eye, it's a big red flag. And if you think about the fact that you have four and a half, five minutes to look, I'm not going to take the time as a reader to dig in and cross-reference and go to the internet and check things. Is like it, if unless you're a very, very unique student, you know, if you're just going to get kicked into the okay, interesting, but didn't do the right job pile, and you're out. Now I've heard, like for example, the student now will only have one space after a period while people in the older generation will have two spaces. I guess you'll see differences like that as well. Yeah. You'll see, you'll pick up differences like that. And also I I should add that most schools now are putting disclaimers. So when you submit an application, you sign what's known as the statement of application integrity. And it says, you know, I, I certify that all the work in this is my own original work product. And several of the top schools have said, this is what that means. It means if somebody looks at your essay and gives you verbal feedback or general thematic feedback, totally fine. The minute they change something in the essay, it's no longer your own work. And some of them will specifically call out using AI. So the danger is, and I know that this is like sky is falling worst case scenario. The danger is that if you are caught using AI, and by the way, 
they can do this at any time, right? They can and often will revoke your admission. And that's not something that you want. So it's something that even in the MBA program, we would have people alert us, you know, at a certain point, hey, this person falsified their application. Here's the proof. And we would have to open an investigation. And if we found that there was malfeasance, we would take it to the ethics committee. And those students oftentimes would get dismissed. And that's awful for everybody. Oh, it's right? terrible. terrible. So it's your your risk reward on this is, I don't think, worth it. Now, for an undergraduate application, you said it's four or five minutes. Does it change much for an MBA or f- from your knowledge for law or medical or dental? The, the application numbers are smaller in those cases, and there's more data to go through. There's more nuance in those applications. So yes, uh, they will spend more time. I don't have the exact breakdown, med school versus law school versus um, MBA, but certainly there are several rounds of, of, um, of review that go on at the graduate level, but also the interviews become much more important, right? So for the large, you know, Ivy plus schools that do interviews like Penn, for example, um, those alumni interviews are absolutely driven by alumni affairs. They want alumni to feel involved. They want them to feel connected. It's nice for admissions that the students get to meet alumni, but the reality is statistically, you have no way to, to validate what's going on in those interviews. There's no control there. You have no, you There's have no, no discernible standards. The Exactly. There's no discernible standard. So by and large, those essay, those interviews are fairly meaningless. Whereas an MBA interview, a law school interview is deeply meaningful in the process. That's interesting. Now, what about the benefits of attending a top tier school or a state school? Can you speak to that a little? You know, I'd be, I'd be happy to. I think that if, if we look at and uh, at the undergraduate level, to me, there's a a tremendous advantage to attending one of the top, you know, the Ivy Plus schools. I think that um, the, the reputation, the brand, the students that you meet, the network effects, the faculty, in that case, you get a fairly good return on investment. Okay. I think your ROI is fairly positive there. But I think once you get outside that really kind of top layer of school, there's a big middle there that charge a lot of money and don't necessarily provide the same return on investment. So in that case, I think you need to be very aware of, you know, do I get a better return on investment going to a a good state school, right? And then looking at an Ivy plus for graduate school. Now, ROI is return on investment. Just people may not be familiar with that. Yes. And when you talk about Ivy Plus, you're talking about the eight Ivy League schools and how many more are in that category? And then generally MIT, University of Chicago, Stanford. Okay. All right. And um, the state schools, same thing, I guess. State schools, I mean, you have great state schools in University of Michigan, Ohio State, right? Um, depending on what you want, the University of California schools, the University of Texas school system. These are excellent schools. And I also think too, you need to think about your long-term career goals. So the example I always use is if you want to work in Southern California, right? USC is a mafia down here, Okay. The USC alumni network is extremely powerful, extremely helpful. And so 
if I have a student that's saying, look, I got into Brown and I got into USC, but I want to make my career in Los Angeles, to me, that's a no-brainer. You go to USC because reputationally and network-wise, it's going to be far more advantageous for you. All right. And what about um, reconciling the cost? You know, Because if you go to an Ivy Plus school, it's an expensive proposition. And it a state is. school is much more cost-efficient. Well, absolutely. And that's where I think you need to look at your individual return on investment or ROI, right? And and some of that depends too on what career are you trying to go into? So as an undergrad, if you're looking at going into, let's say a teaching career, well, then maybe laying on, you know, and then you have to look at the offers that you get, right? From the schools. So if you're looking at paying full freight to Harvard and you can get, you know, a, a far lower you know, a far lower tuition, subsidized tuition to your state school, then I might say, okay, go to the state school and then maybe go do your graduate level work at Harvard, for example, carve your debt down significantly because you know, as a teacher, you're just not going to be earning a lot of money unless you're PhD track and, you know, but, but that's a very different kind of an arc. So I think you really need to look at how much graduate school do you need? What is a graduate school going to cost? right? And then weigh that into your overall decision. Now, it just, uh, something that's always interested in me is that how the admissions offices at these various schools could build a class, because everyone who they accept doesn't necessarily enroll. And so they want to build a class. And I guess there's a lot of statistical analyses that you're performing as you're admitting students to try to gauge what the response rate is. There's a lot of statistical models. There's a lot of um, <laughs> there's a lot of analysis that goes into it, and a lot of it too is just good old fashioned luck, right? You kind of check the wind and and see what's happening. So what you want to do is you want to be very cautious, right? So the first thing that you're doing is you're going out to the various stakeholders and you're figuring out, okay, what are the university's imperatives? What is this particular school's imperative? Uh, at the undergraduate level, they have a lot of if they have athletics, they have, you know, all the different departments weighing in on what they want. Then you construct the class to the best of your ability and you look at what's called melt. And so melt is essentially yield, right? And schools yield different demographics differently. So, you know, for example, okay, this demographic from this particular region, country, school, major, et cetera, I tend to yield this rate right? And so you construct the class around that, you keep a very healthy wait list, and then you wait and see how things shift and move and melt. And then that's when you start pulling from the wait list. And then for, I'm sorry, go ahead. I cut you off. I'm sorry. No. And then the thing to remember is as, as an applicant is that the wait list cascades, right? So there's a definite pyramid, there's a hierarchy to schools. And so if the top schools go to the wait list, then that cascades down to the lower schools. So they pull people off their wait list to the next level down. They have to pull people off their wait list at, because people will cross enroll. And so it becomes this big cascading kind of function. Now, is there any way a student who's applying could let the school know that if you accept me, I'm going to come there? Uh, yes, you can. Um, in On the undergraduate level, they have early action and early decision. So early decision was something that was pioneered by Penn. Uh, it's binding, which means, hey, Penn, I'm applying here. If you admit me early decision, I will come, 
early action is non-binding. Stanford, Harvard have early action, for example, which says, I will only apply to your school in the early round. And if I'm admitted, I don't have to come, but I'm kind of telling you I really want to come. All right. Um, on the MBA level, no. Uh, and, you know, people do break early commitments. It's not a good thing to do. I don't recommend it. Um, telling a school you are my first choice, nobody believes you. So it's, you know, right. you can do it. It doesn't hurt to do it, but nobody believes you. All right. So there's no way to, you know, let them know. That's what I was always interested in. Are, not really. Are there, are there any specific things that people should not do in an application as we're concluding just three or four things that you would say, don't do, obviously don't lie. Don't be yes. anything less than honest or ethical in how you apply, but anything right. else? I think don't overinflate. So a lot of times, the, the main thing is that students, the applicants think that this is a race to find the best. And it's really not, right? It, it's really about finding the most interesting, authentic uh, applicants of excellence, right? And where I think a lot of people trip themselves up is they're so busy kind of beating their chest and yelling their accomplishments that they forget to just tell their own story. And that's where most students, most applicants go astray. That's interesting. I, I've always been interested in just the whole admissions process. And it's, I'm, whatever you said, what, what you said today was extremely interesting. And um, I think relevant for many people who are going to be listening to this. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we conclude? You know, I think um, I think that the important and, and a very important thing to keep in mind is a lot of people get very caught up in this idea of the best school as well. And the the phrase they need to think about is the best school for you. And it's really important to be self-aware. It's really important to think about, okay, you know, this school might be lower ranked, but it really has what I want. It really has exactly what I need to be successful. It's the right environment. It's got these professors I really want to learn from. And so I think being honest with yourself about that will have far better impact on your journey and your success than merely chasing US News and World Report rankings. And that that statement goes out both to applicants, but also their parents, who are usually the ones pushing from <laughs> pushing that US News narrative. Well, Tom, I just want you to know how proud I am of what you've accomplished. But I remember when you were in class and it's no surprise how well you've done. So just thank you for taking the time oh. to speak today and just keep doing the good work. Thank you very much, Professor. That means a lot coming from you. And it's, and it's sincere on what I said. So thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Bob Chalfin. The second edition of my book, A Practical Guide to Buying a Business, is now available. This book, along with my book, A Practical Guide to Selling a Business, can be purchased on Amazon. All proceeds received from the sale of my books are donated to nonprofit organizations.